Well, I think we all at times have lived with a great sense of longing and anticipation for the future. If you have kids in your house, maybe they've been looking forward to spring break and they're so excited because despite what the weather might tell you outside, spring break has arrived. If you were to talk to a senior in college who's studying and and has this horrible disease called senioritis, they could probably tell you not just how many weeks of class are left, but they might be able to tell you how many individual classes they have until their college is done. If you were to talk to a couple who's engaged, chances are they know to the very day on how far away the wedding date is. Sometimes this anticipation isn't just an individual thing either, but it's a thing that collectively people are longing for and looking forwards to. Take, for example, an easy thing for us in Chicago, your average Cubs fan for the last hundred years, right? There's always next year. There's always next year. And there was a sense of hope, of longing, of anticipation of what someday hopefully could be. And that's why for so many Cubs fans, when they won the World Series a year and a half ago, it was so memorable because they had waited for it for so long. Well, the sense of anticipation that we may have experienced in the city of Chicago a year and a half ago, and the senses of anticipation that we may experience in our life, they pale in comparison to the sense of anticipation in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. See, Cubs fans were looking for a World Series for 100 years. Jerusalem had been looking forward to this king, this promised king, for nearly 1,000 years. It was nearly 1,000 years before the time of Jesus that King David was promised by God that he would be given a kingdom and a ruler would reign over his kingdom forever. Yet two generations later, the kingdom was divided by civil war, north and south. 150 years later, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. Some 150 years after that, the Babylonians came and took captives out of the southern kingdom and conquered over there. A few hundred years later, Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered Israel. And about 60 years before the birth of Jesus, Rome came in and conquered over Israel. And in the midst of this, the Jewish people and the Israelites were longing and looking for the day that one would come, the promised one in the Old Testament, the one who would be their Messiah. And prophets throughout the Old Testament spoke of this king who would come and would deliver his people, Israel. One of these prophets is Zechariah. Zechariah was one of two prophets, along with Haggai, who when the people were allowed to go back into the land of Israel after the exile from Babylon, returned with the people. And it was a time of great discouragement and great fear, and they were questioning, what is God doing? Where is this promised one? And as the people were looking for the coming king, God revealed to his people through the prophet Zechariah some characteristics how they would know that their king has truly come. Zechariah gives us insight as to what kind of king this Messiah would be when he eventually does come. 
If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like for you to open them, if you would, to the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah chapter 9. The book of Zechariah chapter 9. And as we look this morning at Zechariah chapter 9, just two verses, we're going to discover together three characteristics of the coming king. Three characteristics that Zechariah highlights for us of the coming king. And together we're going to discover this morning that Jesus is the coming king who has come to save us. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The first characteristic we see this morning from Zechariah chapter 9, the first characteristic of the coming king is that the coming king will be a righteous king. The coming king will be a righteous king. This, this pr- prophetic oracle is given to, to the people of Jerusalem, to the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem being the city, Zion being the mountain on which Jerusalem is located. But they're not just specific for those people, they were for all of God's people. To look forward in anticipation, and as they look forward, to shout for joy as to what God is going to do. Because the king will come. The king is coming to you, Zechariah promised them. And one of the things about this king is that he says, righteous and having salvation is he. That the king will both be righteous and that through his righteousness, God will use him to bring salvation, not just to himself, but to all of God's people. The coming Messiah would be the one through whom God would save his world. And we see that the king here is called to be a righteous king. Righteous not in just that he would rule over his kingdom with justice, but righteous in his very nature and character, that he would live a life of justice and holiness before God. See, Zechariah prophesied that the coming king would be a righteous king. And we see fulfilled in the pages of the New Testament that the coming king himself was Jesus and Jesus himself was indeed the righteous king that the Bible foretold would come. There are so many passages throughout the New Testament that talk of the righteousness of Jesus, of his perfection, of all of his character. One of these is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. It says this, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. One of the things that I love so much about the New Testament is that that it was written by guys like, this is written by Peter. And John says a very similar thing. And what's amazing is these weren't just guys who had heard stories about Jesus and they went back and they're telling us like researched agendas of what Jesus' life was like. If you don't know Peter and John, they were disciples of Jesus. They spent three years of their life living with Jesus, day in and day out. They saw him as the crowds surrounded him. They saw him under stress and under pressure. And they could honestly look at their congregations. They could tell the people they're writing to, he was sinless. He was perfect. See, sometimes there's this misconception about pastors 
that somehow we're, we're perfect. But I guarantee you, if you were to spend three years of your life living with me, it would not take you three years to discover the fact that I am not perfect. On some days, it wouldn't take you three hours to discover that fact. Because pastors are like every other person born into the world. We are sinners. We are unrighteous people. Each and every one of us have committed sin. But this coming king, the Messiah, is different. He's unique. He is righteous. See, as we begin today Holy Week, where we look forward with anticipation, as we remember the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday and the great celebration of his resurrection from the dead on Sunday, it's in those events that Jesus offered up his life and received his resurrection from the dead and lives now. And it's in those things that we can have salvation. But it's in how he lived his life before that that makes him qualified to save us to begin with. See, to be a permanent sacrifice for sin, it was a requirement that that sacrifice be perfect, be without spot, without blemish. See, this is what sets Jesus apart from all other world religions and religious leaders. See, many religions teach a high moral standing and moral behaviors that people should live by. But it's only Jesus who lived a perfect life. No other religion has that. No other religious leader can claim and with any sort of integrity that they've lived a perfect life. And it's what sets Jesus and it's what sets Christianity apart. It's why Jesus alone is qualified to be the Messiah. Now, one of the, the oldest fairy tales, believe it or not, traced back to versions of it over 2,000 years ago, is the story that most of us here this morning know as Cinderella. Most of us are familiar with the story of Cinderella, of an orphan girl who's left behind and cared for by, by her stepmom and those evil stepsisters. And we know there's the ball that they're going to. And they don't want Cinderella to come. And then through some magic, she gets out and she goes to the ball. And of course, the prince doesn't like anyone else and he dances with her and immediately he falls in love with her. But as the clock starts to strike midnight, she realizes that she has to leave for her appearance will change. So she runs away as the clock is ticking to midnight, leaving behind nothing but in the Disney version, a glass slipper. And suddenly the prince knows what he must do. And he takes the glass slipper and goes throughout the kingdom seeing who fit this shoe. Who could be qualified to wear this? It will only fit one person. And we see throughout the movie and the story, as many women try and fit their foot into the shoe, but none can. None until the prince finally comes back and he finds Cinderella at the end, where she alone is qualified to put her foot into the shoe because it's for her alone. See, the reason that Jesus can save us from our sins isn't because he's the only one willing, but it's he's the only one qualified. No one else in history has the qualifications that Jesus has to save us from our sin. He is the only one. He has been prophesied that he would be righteous and salvation would come through him. Which is why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, Verse 5, verse 21, excuse me, says this, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was given to Jesus on the cross, and on, on exchange of that, Jesus' righteousness, because he lived a perfect life, is now given to us. Only a Messiah, only a king who had lived a perfect life could give us the righteousness of God. Jesus is not one of many who can save. Jesus is the one and only who can save. Indeed, as has been prophesied from the Old Testament, Jesus is the coming king who has come to save us. Well, the second half of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, highlights this. It says that Jesus comes humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we see the second characteristic, the second characteristic of this coming king is that he will be a humble king. The second characteristic of our coming king is that he will be a humble king. The king enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. A prophecy that we see clearly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We had it read for us this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of John quotes Zechariah 9.9 as well. It's talking about how walking into, riding into, excuse me, on that day, Jesus was fulfilling what had been written about him over 500 years before. Mark and Luke don't quote Zechariah 9, but they make clear reference to the donkey alluding back to how Jesus was fulfilling the prophets of the Old Testament in doing it. See, of all the ways a king could enter into his kingdom, enter in in his triumphal entry of all the things that he could ride in on, a donkey was quite unexpected. See, perhaps we would have considered that that he would, as the king, would come on a majestic horse, showing his, his conquering strength in battle as he rides in over his people. Or perhaps in a chariot, as he's drawn in and surrounded by his warriors, showing his might and his power. Or maybe coming in on a camel, so he's high up, so his royal robes can be recognized and seen by all the people. But no. The coming king, to reflect his humility and his unassuming nature, will come in riding on a donkey. See, in Chicago, we're familiar with having important people come and visit our city. And perhaps in in recent times, the largest gathering of such was in May of 2012, when Chicago and McCormick Place hosted the 2012 NATO Summit. And and world leaders from over 60 of the largest and most powerful countries in the world all gathered here in our city and met for a couple days. Now, you may remember this because the traffic was so bad in May of 2012. See, to figure out security and what they would do, they had all that time that the the summit was going on. On every highway exit and on-ramp from O'Hare all the way to downtown, were police cars stationed. And at the moment, the radio told them they would shut off the highway so that when these royal dignitaries, mostly presidents and prime ministers, would land on their airplanes, they would have an escort police get in a big SUV or a nice limo and cruise right down the Kennedy to downtown. It's no wonder world leaders love Chicago so much. They've never been stuck in traffic here. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine Chicago in the summer with no traffic? Talk about a great place. But imagine you wanted to go out 
that weekend. You had plans. You, you were meeting up with someone for lunch. And so rather than try and fight through the traffic, who knows if you can get on or off the highway, you're like, I'm a real Chicagoan. I'm going to take the train. And so you jump on the L. And as you're, you're going down the L, you're hitting on the blue line, suddenly you look over and you say, I think I've seen that person on the news or something before. And they're like, no, no, it can't be. And then you look around and you see that there's guys wearing suits with earpieces in around and you're like, wait a second. And so you pull out your phone and you start Googling. And imagine if you're sitting on the blue line as you're bouncing along coming into downtown and you realize that riding on the train with you is the president or the prime minister of another country. See, Chicagoans know there's very few things that can be as humbling as taking the CTA with all the smells and sounds that you can experience on it. And imagine the shock that it would have been if someone would have entered into the summit in that way. That's kind of what it was like for Jesus to come riding on a donkey in this unassuming way. See, Jesus clearly fulfills this prophecy given in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He clearly fulfills it both in the fact that he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, but also in this claim that the coming king would be a humble king. He portrays this example of humility throughout his entire life. In fact, the very idea that God, Jesus himself, would take on flesh is a humbling experience greater than you or I will ever be able to comprehend. His entire life was one of humility. One of the phrases that is quoted most often that Jesus said throughout the Gospels is this, I have not come to be served, but to serve. The king hasn't come for people to serve him. The king has come to serve God and to serve other people. In fact, a few days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as he's eating the Passover meal with his disciples, we see Jesus taking the lowest of the low and washing his disciples' feet. And as he washes his disciples' feet in the book of John, he makes this statement to them that I'm doing this as an example for you to follow. See, this is one of the most shocking characteristics of the coming king, that he would be humble in nature. And Jesus' humility is one of the things that we are most often told in Scripture that believers should emulate in their own lives. See, several years ago, back in the 1990s, there, there was a fad going around. If you, were, if you were young in the 1990s, you probably had one of these, a WWJD bracelet. They kind of sprung up actually from a youth retreat here in the Midwest and, and kind of a reminder to have the attitude that Jesus would have. Now sometimes this, this concept, what would Jesus do, isn't very helpful. If you're throwing a big Easter party next week and you want to have a nice dinner, buy more than one fish and one piece of bread, right? You're not Jesus, you can't just multiply your food out of nowhere. If your friend is sick, you can't just go touch them and heal them anytime you Want. So sometimes the phrase doesn't work very well. But when we think of what Jesus would do, we can be sure of this. Jesus wouldn't be thinking about himself. Jesus lived a life of humility, not of self-centeredness. His life was focused on two things. He was not thinking of himself. He was first thinking of God. 
Thinking of God constantly, he lived his life in submission and obedience to God. Which is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was overwhelmed with sorrow, he could have the courage to say, yet not my will, God, but yours. Humility seen in his obedience. And he was thinking of others constantly as well. He didn't come to be served, but to serve other people. See, this is the key to humility. It's not to focus your life on being humble or to think of yourself and not, and not to do other things, but to try and do this. The key to humility is this. Just stop thinking about yourself so much. Start thinking about God more. Start thinking about other people more. See, if you're a believer this morning, this call to emulate the humble coming king, King Jesus, is a lifelong, everyday thing for us. See, you can never arrive at the place where you've mastered humility, right? The moment that you think you can say, I've got humility down, shows that you certainly don't, right? It shows the great pride that's in your life. And humility is to be a defining characteristic of the followers of Jesus Christ. Few things could be such a radical witness in our world and our society than humble Christians. In our self-promoting, self-centered world, few things would spread the love of Jesus, spread the gospel as much as Christians who truly understood what it was to be humble and lived it out in their everyday lives. Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. So can I ask you, who this week do you need to serve? Maybe it starts at home. Maybe you need to serve your spouse, serve your kids. Kids, maybe you need to serve your brothers, your sisters, serve your parents. Maybe it's at work. Who do you need to serve this week? Do you need to, to instead of having a self-centered, what can, what can this benefit me attitude at work, how can you serve your coworkers? How can you serve your boss? See, an attitude of service reflects the attitude of humility that Jesus wants from each and every one of his followers. Zechariah's prophecy continues in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. It says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The third characteristic of the coming king, the third characteristic is that the coming king comes and he brings peace. Our coming king comes and with him he brings peace for all people. See, the donkey in this prophecy doesn't just reflect the humility of Jesus. It also reflects the nature in which he enters into Jerusalem. And while it would have been quite shocking that that a conquering king entering his country wouldn't have come riding on a horse, but also a donkey says that the coming king comes in peace. See, no one entered into war riding on a donkey. That's what a horse was for. But in times where a king meant to portray that he enters in peace, he would ride on a donkey. 
We see this in 1 Kings chapter 1. As Solomon rides in in peace into Jerusalem, we're told twice that he actually enters in riding on a donkey. This coming king comes and he offers peace first to the conflicts in Israel. Ephraim here refers to the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, Excuse me, Ephraim is to the north. Jerusalem, there we go. Jerusalem is to the southern kingdom, the, the two tribes on the south part. And Jesus says, I will take this division where you've been divided for hundreds of years and I will restore you. But he's not going to do it through war, right? The, the chariots, the war horse, the battle bow would be put aside. That's akin to now our day saying that he's not coming with tanks and aircraft carriers and fighter jets. He's not coming with the modern weapons of war. But instead, it says he will speak peace, not just to Israel, but he will speak peace to the nations. He'll speak peace to all people, from sea to sea. This is not a reference to America the beautiful. He's not talking about how America will get Jesus from sea to shining sea. In fact, he's referencing back to the psalmist in Psalm 72, verse 8, where the psalmist cries out, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And we get this picture of the gospel and peace being spread through the whole world when John gives us a glimpse into heaven in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 5, we read this, where the saints cry out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and every language, and every people, and every nation. It's the picture of peace that Jesus Christ brings about going to the whole world. So you might say, what is this peace that Jesus brings? You might think this morning, well, I'm not at war with God. I I don't have any issues with him. Why why do I need peace from God? See, when we speak of peace in English, we we just tend to use it as two parties aren't fighting, right? If parents have kids at home and there's peace at home, it just means it's quiet. It doesn't mean they like each other. It just means they're not hitting each other. It's quiet. It's good. Everything is at peace. But the biblical idea of peace goes beyond just the absence of conflict, It's the idea of wholeness, of friendship, of unity in relationship. That whether we realize it or not, when we were born into this world, we were born not at peace with God, but at enmity, at war with God. See, Jesus fulfills this prophecy that he would bring and speak peace to the nations. And he fulfills it, again, not by bringing weapons of war, but Jesus fulfills this prophecy by sacrificing his own life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and beginning of 14 say this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. The sin that separates us from God is hopeless. It cannot be crossed. There's nothing we can do about it aside from Jesus bringing us peace. Well, as you may have seen if you've watched the news at all this weekend, in France on Friday morning, um, there was a terrorist attack. And the attacker hijacked a car in the south of France, killing one of the car passengers. 
and was driving through and he shot at some police officers who were out going for a morning jog before he then pulled up to a supermarket, ran in and started shooting and hurting people. And he went in and then he started taking hostages um, and calling out his demands. And the standoff led for several hours long on Friday morning. As, the, as people had hidden and were starting to leave out the exits, police were trying to get as many people out as possible to make sure that no one else would be hurt. Well, at some point in the negotiations, into that supermarket walked a man named Lieutenant Colonel Arnold Betram. I promise I'm not going to say his name again. I'm sorry, pardon my French. But the Lieutenant Colonel walks in a high-ranking police officer in the area. And he tried negotiating with the attacker to give up the last hostage, a woman who the attacker was holding as his own body shield so that the police would not shoot after him. And he negotiated with the terrorist to finally get her released, and she was released. But he had to put down his weapon and trade places with her a woman who he had never met. And he traded places with her. And several hours later, the police heard gunshots and they went rushing in and they were able to kill the attacker. The man was wounded and we found out yesterday morning that he passed away from his wounds. See, that's what true love is. That it sees conflict, it sees hostility, and it says, I'm gonna do everything I can, including offering up my own life to save someone else. This is a small picture of what Jesus offers and has done for each and every one of us. See, we were held captive by our sin. And unlike the, this woman who had been, we, we deserved it. We had done wrong. And the penalty for our sin was on our own head. And our sin was a violation against God's will, and it separated us from God. And there was nothing that we could do to cause us to have peace with God. But the coming king, the coming king who comes to save us, Jesus so wanted to have peace with you and with me that he traded places with us, that he took upon the punishment of our sin himself so that our righteousness could, his righteousness, excuse me, could be given to us while our sin was given to him. Jesus is the king who has come to save. Israel stood out in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They looked for a king, a king who could bring them peace, a king who was righteous, a king who is humble. Today, would you look to that king? The righteous king. The only one qualified to save us from our sins because he's unique in all of history that he lived a perfect life. The humble king, serving God, serving others, serving us by offering to take our place. The only one who can bring us true peace to offer us peace with God. Surely, the coming king into Jerusalem was Jesus, Jesus the king who has come to save us. God, we thank you 
that that king who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is still the king who reigns over this world today. God, we thank you that we can have peace with you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you so loved us that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, humbled himself, and was obedient to you even to the point of dying for us on a cross. God, may our hearts, may our hearts be motivated to love you more. God, to humble ourselves and serve those around us and to seek you for the peace that we truly need. God, we commit ourselves to you today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.